love containers. And I feel pretty certain that I can step out on a limb here and say that may be the first time in the history of Christendom that those words have been spoken to introduce a sermon, but it's true, I really love containers, and I'm especially fond of the ones that are clear, but then you put the top on top, and then there's the little handles that clip over the sides that help you know that everything is insecure, and they're a little pricey, and so I don't have as many as I would like, but if finances were not an issue, my house would be filled top to bottom with containers. Everything I own put in its own container for its own purpose and stacked up neatly. I even like my food to be in containers. There's just something really satisfying about seeing things in containers and knowing that they all have their own little home to which they belong. And so it's helpful to be able to compartmentalize life, to be able to compartmentalize the things that are going on and even the things that we have. But there's also a temptation that we have as followers of Christ, to compartmentalize God. A lot of times you'll hear people use the phrase that we can't put God in a box. But I would go even further to say we often try to put God in containers, plural. And we take the parts of God and we separate them into all these different containers and we stack them up and we say, okay, here are the things about God that I really like. And the things about God that I like but are hard to understand, and maybe here's some other things about God that I'm still working towards knowing more fully. But then we also can have a section of containers where we're saying, here are the things that I don't like so much about God. And so when we come to church and when it's time for worship and even time for prayer, we take out our stack of compartments and containers about God that we like, and we bring those to the table and we say, today, this is the God that I'm going to worship. And we end up worshiping a false god because we only worship the parts of him that we want and the parts of him that we like. As we've been going through Genesis chapter 1 through 11, we've made it into Genesis chapter 3 now. And when we hit Genesis chapter 3, we see a change in tone from the way that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 were told. And here we start to see the full picture of who God is. And all of a sudden, God starts to take our compartments and break them apart, and we have to learn and recognize that because of all of these things that God really is, we have to learn to worship Him where it is easy, like in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then where it also makes us uncomfortable, like in Genesis chapter 3. Because as we've been looking at these different characteristics of God, today we are going to look at our God who is both a God of judgment and a God of grace. And recognizing that we can't compartmentalize these things, but we need to see both of these characteristics of God working together in unity and harmony to reveal to us who God really is. And also recognizing that both of these characteristics are good news for broken sinners like us. And so we're going to read a lot of scripture today. We're going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 3. And so if you would, hang with me as we hear the words of God. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called the wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you that it is always good and always true. And God, we thank you for who you are. Even when it doesn't seem like it's who we want you to be. And so God, this morning I pray that you help us to recognize the idolatry in our lives and the pride in our lives and to put that aside, to cast those things down so that we can worship you in the fullness of who you are. Help us to recognize the 
beauty in not only your grace, but in your judgment as well. And so, Father, we pray that you speak through your word and teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before we start looking at Genesis chapter 3, what this teaches us about the God who is, I want us to stop and think about the God we want, or at least the God that we often think that we want. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we can almost view it as a hierarchy, that it's top-weighted, and then as you go down, things get a little easier and a little less important, per se. So we can look at things like having no other gods before God and honoring his name and think, well, if he's the God of all creation, then of course, obviously, I need to keep those things sacred and holy. And we can understand the importance of honoring father and mother and not killing people. Those seem to make a lot of sense and seem to be really important. But then when we get down to the bottom, when number 10 tells us not to covet what we don't have, not to covet our neighbor's stuff. This one seems less serious. This is something that can easily be looked at as a lesser commandment. And part of that is because, first off, all of us deal with that allure, that intoxicating pull to desire what other people have. It's easy in the course of our daily life to look at what we have and to realize what we don't and compare that against other people around us. And so it seems like a very natural thing to do to compare and contrast and to desire what we don't have. But it's also a really excusable sin when it comes to jealousy and covetousness. Because we can start to run down all the merits that we think that we have and say, you know what? It's not really fair that this person has this and I don't. Or it's not right that this person has these gifts that they're wasting and I'm not able to do these things. And we start to justify it and we can almost make it something that sounds very sanctimonious and very righteous. Saying that if I just had these things or these gifts, imagine what I would do for the kingdom of God. And so this is a sin that is very easily excusable for us. But when we really look at scripture, we find that this sin of covetousness and jealousy that's rooted in pride is probably one of the most deadly sins that we fall into and is at least the root of all other sins. When we look at Genesis chapter 3, this passage opens in a way that would lead us to believe that the fruit itself is going to be the source of the downfall of these people. We can read the writing on the wall when Genesis chapter 3 opens up with this new character, with this new figure here, the serpent who is so crafty and divisive. And we know from the opening lines of this conversation that things are not going to go well. But when we look at it, it seems as though the fruit itself is what's going to be responsible for the downfall. That it's going to be taking the fruit and eating it that's going to cause these people to fall out of fellowship with God. And we're going to see everything that God had created begin to come unraveled because of sin. And so it begins with the serpent asking a question. And he begins by saying, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, some translations make that even a little more plain, saying, did God really say to you? 
is this really a thing that your God asked you to do? Because we looked last week at this God who as a good father establishes boundaries and barriers and sets truth and sets commandments for the good of his people. And the serpent comes in not directly with a temptation to just break the law immediately, but causing Eve to question what God actually said. Did he really say this? Is this really what God expects of you? And her response is shaky. She says, well, no, that's not what God said. In verse 2, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And here we see Eve add something to God's commandments. And last week, we looked at the danger of legalism of adding commandments to God's commandments just for the sake of having more rules or protecting God's rules. And so right away, Eve has started to move away from this understanding of what God actually commanded and is instead following a new commandment that she established. And so with that shakiness in her response, the serpent dives in. And now we see a full assault on God's commandments. And he says in verse 4, you will not surely die. You see, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so sensing that Eve is on shaky ground and recognizing that legalism is a weakness in her understanding of God's commandments, the serpent dives in and says, no, 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 that's not really true. You see, what's actually going to happen is when you take of this fruit, when you do this thing, when you cross God's boundaries, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And so there we see the core of the temptation. It wasn't simply to break God's rules, but to be like God. The serpent says, listen, no, 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 no. You don't need to listen to him. You can become your own God, made in your own image. And so she looks at the fruit and says, you know what? It does look good. Verse 6 says that she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And there she comes into conflict, with the source of sin. You see, our problem, as we looked last week at a God who sets boundaries and gives commandments and makes rules for us to follow, our ultimate problem is not that we have a God who makes rules, but that we have a God who exists, and that that God is not me. You see, when we look at sin, all sin, it boils down to idolatry. It boils down to coveting not what our neighbor has, but coveting what God himself has and say, why does he get all of this? Why does he get to tell me that there's this one thing that I can't do? What makes him so special that I can't be just like him? And so we want to take matters into our own hands. We want something other than God. In fact, we want ourselves to be God. I know we've talked about this before, but in this ancient world in which Genesis was born out of, but really not much has changed now, 
But in the ancient world, these deities, the idols that they would create, were not born out of thin air. They weren't mystical based on characteristics not known to this world. These idols were formed and fashioned in the image of us. People created these idols in their own image. And so what they were doing when they were worshiping nature or when they were worshiping statues or when they were worshiping spirits, they were actually just worshiping themselves. The idols were vicarious reciprocants for self-worship. And when we talk about sin, sin is simply the outward manifestation of a deep-seated inward desire to either be or create a God we want in the place of the God who is. We look at God and we say, this might be who you are, but this isn't who I want you to be. I want you to be more like me, or I want you to be more like this. And so instead of worshiping you and follow your commandments, I'm going to worship myself or something that looks like me and that gives me the permissions and the freedoms that I think that I want. And that's exactly what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. He says, yeah, God might have set this boundary, but this tree looks good. And it doesn't make sense to me why I can't have this. And surely the serpent's right. And God just doesn't want me to be like him. And then in verse 7. Coming after the last half of verse 6, it says, She took the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. And then in verse 7, it says, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They crossed the boundary. They took everything into their own hands. They tried to become like God, and their eyes were opened. And they got exactly what they wanted, or at least what they thought they wanted. But it wasn't quite what they expected. And what we see here is the exchange of sin. Because we get that momentary joy of taking matters into our own hands. We get that momentary feeling of saying, this is what it's like to be the God of my own life, to make my own rules, and to take my own freedom, and to use it however I want. And there's that momentary feeling of, this is exactly what I want. And then it's quickly replaced by the realization that it is horribly lacking. That when we really get what we think we want, we start to understand that we don't know what we want at all. Because while these people thought that they were going to cross God's boundaries and find enlightenment and find deity, what they really found was their own inadequacy. They realized that they were naked and they became ashamed and they felt guilt. And they felt the full weight of their sin. And so as we think about the God that we think we want, the life that we think we want, as sin looks so alluring and temptation pulls us from all sides, we need to learn to see these counterfeit gods. And we need to learn to see sin with Eden in mind. Not falling for the half-truth of sin, but seeing the full picture for what it really is. A friend of mine once described sin as death running five minutes late. 
It's just death waiting to happen, trying to pull us away from our creator, from the life giver, from the one who loves us and knows us more than anyone ever possibly could, and who has designed this world for us to live in, and who has given us the path and the pattern that we should follow for a life of purpose and meaning. When we take that deviation into sin, we realize that it's just pulling us away from the life and the purpose that God has given us and leads us down a path pathway towards death. And so we need to confront the covetousness in our hearts, the jealousy in our hearts, the idolatry that lives inside of us thinking that we would somehow be better at this whole God thing than God is. And recognizing how silly and foolish that is and casting that away and instead being desperate to see God for who he is, worship him for who he is, and trust him and follow in the commandments that he's given us. But that's not what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. They made the choice and now they have to live with the consequences. And here we find a God who judges sin. Now, one of the things that I love about Scripture is that Scripture is serious, and it's poetic, and it's beautiful, and it's life-giving, and it's alive, and also at times it's very funny. We see places in Scripture that are really humorous and light and show us sometimes the silliness and the folly and the irony of, of life and how we exist and the choices that we make. I love in, in the book of Jonah in chapter 4, where we see the the back and forth between Jonah and God, where this prophet is throwing a fit like a toddler, yelling at God that he's so angry that he wishes he could just die. And God grants him some reprieve by giving him this plant. And Jonah sits under the plant, and he's just filled with great joy. And then in possibly one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, we're told that God appoints a worm to attack the plant. And so God takes something so small and meaningless and he sends him to bring great unhappiness to this prophet. And right back again, as soon as the plant dies, Jonah falls back into this, oh, it would be better for me to die than to live. And it just shows us how ridiculous that is. We see in the book of Job, when Job, the poor guy, finally has just had all that he could have, and he comes to God, and he just starts pleading with God, tell me why all of this is happening. The opening line that God chooses to address Job with is basically an ancient version of, it's time to put your big boy pants on, because I'm about to give you a full ear of everything that you didn't think you wanted to know. I love in the New Testament, as we were looking through the book of Luke, as Jesus is ministering to the Samaritan woman, and as he's teaching her about the kingdom of God, his disciples had gone looking for food for him. And they come back, and Jesus is in the midst of this incredibly important conversation, and the disciples are buzzing around him like your grand aunt when you come home from college for the first time, and she's saying, are you getting enough to eat? Are you doing everything that you need to do? And they're just buzzing around him saying, Jesus, have you eaten? Have you eaten? And finally, he just says, go away. Don't you recognize what's happening? We'll eat later. And so there's all these moments that just show us the, the lighter side of wrestling with, with sin and with our feelings and our emotions that help us to understand how irrational they can be. And here in this passage of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, this would be one of those moments 
if it weren't so devastating. Because here, they eat the fruit, they recognize their sin, they're covered in guilt and shame, they try to sew together fig leaves to make some clothes for themselves, to cover themselves up, and then they hear God coming. And it doesn't say this, but I like to imagine that God was whistling. I don't whistle well, or I would take a shot at it, but he's just whistling a little tune, whatever his favorite tune was. It says that God's walking through the garden, and they hear him. And their immediate response is to hide. And now, clearly, they understand who God is. And so clearly, this is not a logical decision to try to hide from God, and yet that's exactly what they do. And then God humors them by asking a question. He says, where are you? As if he doesn't know. But they try to hide away from God. And this isn't the only time this happens in Scripture. We see it happen on a regular basis. Again, in the book of Jonah, when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, his first movement is to get on a boat and ride to Tarshish. And the book of Jonah tells us that his goal was to get out of the presence of God. He was trying to hide away from God. And while that seems ridiculous, don't we do the same? Think about times when we fall into sin or disobedience. And how the easiest thing to do is to start trying to hide from God. And so we avoid praying. Maybe it's out of guilt. Maybe it's out of pride. We avoid reading scripture. We avoid coming to church. We even avoid running into other Christians because we want to try to do our best to hide away from God. But just like we see happening here in the Garden of Eden, we have to realize that that's not something that's possible. And so God calls out, where are you? And then Adam and Eve, in a way that makes me feel very nostalgic. Because I remember those times growing up when I would get got, you know what I mean? I did something wrong, and they knew, and I knew they knew, but we haven't quite put it out in the open yet that they know. And they give you the chance. This is so frustrating. I'm sure I'm going to do it with my kids too. Probably already have. You give them a chance to own up to it, right? Did you do it? And then there's the moment where you think, hmm, (laughs) what am I going to do here? What's the move? Am I going to deny this? Because clearly they know. And so am I going to take the shot to lie my way out of this, or am I just going to fess up? And usually when you decide to fess up, it just all comes out because you've got nothing to lose, and so here it all is. And that's exactly what happens with Adam. God says, where are you? And he says, right here. (laughs) This is it. This is what's happening. Here I am. No need to try to hide. We understand that was silly. That was foolish. Go ahead. Let's get this over with. And then comes the blame. Adam says, I hid from you because I recognized that I was naked. And then God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then Adam, being a man, says, I did it. I did it, God. I ate the fruit. It was all my fault. It was just me. Me and me alone. It was my No, he didn't. He said, it was this woman That, uh, by the way, not to point any fingers, it was this woman that you gave me. So really, when we're thinking about blame and fault, there's a little bit to go around for everybody. And so he says, it was this woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit, and so I ate of it. And so God looks at the woman, and he says, what have you done? And she said, I'm so sorry. I confess what I've done, and I just want to repent. 
and I am so sorry that I, I did this. This is on me. No, she did not. She said it was the serpent. He tempted me and said that it was going to be good, and so I gave in to the temptation, and everybody is passing the blame along. And so then God starts dealing out the consequences. And he looks at the serpent. He says, because you've done this, you are going to be the lowest of the low. You're going to crawl on your belly in the dirt. He says, because of this, one day, one of the offspring of this woman is going to come, and he is going to crush your head. And there we see the first foretaste of the gospel. The fact that one day God is going to send his son into the world to undo the effects of temptation and sin. But so the serpent gets his consequence, gets his punishment, and then God moves back up the list of blame. And he says to the woman, now there's going to be problems for you as well. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. And when we look at these consequences, we see that they are directly tied in to the sin. The punishment fits the crime. To the woman, he says, since it was your desire to step out of your place, to step out of your place as creation and try to become the creator, desire is going to reign in your heart. And to the man, he says, because you took something that I made sacred, that I set apart, and you thought that it was your right to have it and ignored all of the other freedoms that I had given you, because you've done this, then your consequences, it's going to be hard for you to take that freedom again. That it's going to be hard for you to enjoy the good things that I've given you. But not only do we see that the punishment fits the crime, but we also see something that was a blessing now become a curse. Remember the first commandments that God gave to people in Genesis chapter 1 was to be fruitful and multiply and to work the earth and subdue it. And both of those things were designed to bring joy. Both of those things were designed to be easy. They were blessings. They were gifts from God that gave purpose and meaning to the climax of his creation, to the people that he had created. And now those things that were good and honorable and easy and wonderful have now become difficult and painful and bear out punishment. Because you see, sin distorts the image of God in which we were created. Remember Genesis 1, in the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. In his own image, he created us. And God is good, and God is perfect, and God is holy. And so when we're not, we take that image that he's given us, and we twist it, and we mar it, and we mutilate it. And it's still there, but we're presenting a false representation of it. We distort the image of God in our lives. And so we realize here in this passage that distorting the image of God distorts the blessings of God. And so because they distorted God's image in their lives, the blessings that God had given them had now become something cursed and broken. 
And this is the first time in Scripture that we see a God that we wouldn't create. A God that creates the world, the God that is an artist and an architect designing all things, yes, absolutely. A God that is a good father who provides good blessings for his people and loves them intimately and compassionately, yes, absolutely. But a God who holds us accountable for our sins, eh, I could do without that. I don't want a God who holds me accountable. Maybe other people, that would be fine. But a God who deals with me and a God who judges my sin, I would probably rather not have him around. But he's the God that we need. The God who keeps right things in order and takes the things that are not right and not good and purges them from his creation. But even more importantly, the fact that he is the God that we need, more importantly, he is the God that is. And so because of that, as this is the way that God reveals himself to us, we should pay attention to who he is, all parts of who he is. Recognizing that the fact that he is a God who judges sin and has put out consequences for when his commandments, when his boundaries are broken. And that this is part of who we worship. A God who is holy and righteous and judges what is not. And Genesis chapter 3 lets us realize that we have a God who is holy and good and who cannot let sin go unreckoned with. A God who cannot let sin go undealt with. A God who is going to see that eliminated and purged from his good garden and his good kingdom. And if God had allowed this sin to continue, If God had allowed this sin to go unpunished, not only would he not be good, he couldn't be God. It would go against the very fabric and nature of who he is. And so we recognize in this passage of scripture that he is a God who judges sin and deals rightly with it. And all of these consequences, these curses, these come on top of what he said would be the natural consequence of breaking that commandment, and that's death. But here, we see another side of who God is. Because this story could have and should have ended here. He says, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so the Bible realistically should have been about three chapters long. God creates the world. Everything is good. God makes this garden for his people to live in. His people cross that boundary. They taste of the fruit. They sin against God. They drop dead. Story over. Bible ended. But it didn't end here. This is just the beginning, remember? This is God introducing himself. And after the curses come down, it's a weird transition in verse 20. So God is raining down this judgment. He's raining down these punishments, these consequences of sin from verse 14 all the way through verse 19. And so the last line of it there is this mantra of Lent that for from dust you came, from dust you shall return. And then in verse 20 it says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That verse seems starkly out of place. That seems like an odd time to give someone a name. 
That seems like an odd time to talk about someone being the mother of all living. Maybe this is out of, maybe it's out of place. Maybe this verse belongs in Genesis chapter 2. But no, this is exactly where it's supposed to be. Because after all of that, after all the consequences from sin come down on these people, we recognize that their sin didn't change God's plan. And what's even more amazing is that their sin didn't change God's calling. Because remember, that first commandment was to be fruitful and multiply. And here, even after all of these consequences were given, the very next thought, the very next sentence is that the man's wife was named Eve because she would be the mother of all living, because she was going to be fruitful and multiply. And again, we see after they're sent out of the garden that it's there's still the responsibility of man to work the ground that he was born out of. And so we see this amazing truth that just because they sinned, just because they crossed over God's boundaries, just because they rebelled against and lied to God, it didn't change their calling and it didn't change their plans. But it changed who they were. Because remember, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, they're described as being naked and unashamed. This description of people with nothing to hide. No shame, no guilt, no worries, no problems. They were able to move freely in God's garden, taking of anything they want except that one tree. And now we see they have changed, not just internally, but from the outside. They recognized that they were naked and they felt that shame and they felt that guilt. And so immediately what they did was try to take this into their own hands. And it says they took fig leaves and they sewed them together and they tried to make for themselves clothes. The first act of self-righteousness, trying to cover up guilt and shame on their own. And so because of that, God does drive them out of his garden but not before doing something amazing. Now, had I been preaching this sermon in about two or three months, then I have a fig tree in my yard that was kindly given by Mr. Lee, and the fig tree would have big leaves. It doesn't have big leaves yet, but the fig, le- the fig tree would have big leaves. And I could have tried to sew for myself some clothes and worn those in, and we could decide if they were good clothing. But that would probably be awkward for all of us and probably insulting to Mr. Lee, who I imagine did not give me that tree so that I could sew clothes out of its leaves. But we can all make the assumption that even though a fig tree has pretty big leaves, like a nice big size once they get grown, this is pretty inadequate covering. And so God makes them some proper clothes. It says in verse 21, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. When we look at Genesis, we find that the very first sacrifice depicted in Scripture was not a sacrifice from man to God, but it was a sacrifice from God for man. God sacrificed an animal and wrapped his people in proper clothing to cover their guilt and to cover their shame. And if that's not a foreshadow, I don't know what is. 
And so here we see the second picture of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that our antidote to that is to try to fix it ourselves. That we try to put on self-righteousness. And so we feel that guilt, we feel that shame, we feel the weight of our sin, whether it's pride or humiliation, and we try to cover it up. We do whatever we can. Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's separating ourselves from God. Maybe it's trying to act as prideful and righteous as we possibly can. We try to find something that distracts from the fact that we're not okay. We try to find something to cover up our guilt and our shame. But the more that we try, the more we realize there is nothing that we can do to accomplish that. There's nothing that we can put on to cover up the guilt and the shame of sin. And so God looked at us, rebels and sinners and liars and cheats, and he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son, not expecting a sacrifice from us, but making a sacrifice for us. And Jesus offered himself on the cross as a substitution for our sin. He took our pain. He took our death. He extended the matchless love of God for us. And through the shedding of his own blood and the breathing of his last breath, gave us hope for forgiveness. And through his resurrection, sealed that promise so that when we trust in Christ, When we follow after Jesus, he looks at us in all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our sin, seeing all the spiritual fig leaves that we've stapled together to try to cover ourselves up. And he takes those broken fig leaves of self-righteousness and he removes them. And the Bible says that he wraps us in a robe of his righteousness. And he takes our shame and he takes our guilt and he covers us once and for all. Adam and Eve couldn't cover their own sin or shame. So God did, even though they deserved nothing from him. And that is what we call grace. You see, salvation has always been about grace. God knows that we don't have it in us to save ourselves. No matter how much we work, no matter how much we read, no matter how much we try, we don't have enough to put something on the side of the scale that outweighs our sin and the death that we brought into the world. And so God tips the scale for us, even though we don't deserve it. And he gives us a free gift of grace. And that is the gospel That's the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, I know the weight that comes with feeling either prideful or guilty. Either prideful thinking, even though I've done some things wrong, I'm not as bad as all these other people around me, and so I really don't need any help from God. Or feeling the guilt saying, I've done so many things. 
I am so broken and so sinful. There's no way that God could love me. Jesus is the cure for both of those thoughts because he reminds us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us are guilty of bringing death on ourselves through our sin, but none of us are so guilty and so sinful that our sin can overtake the power of his cross. And so if you put your faith if you've never put your faith in Christ before, please don't leave this place today without talking with me or one of our elders or small group leaders about what it means to follow after Jesus and to be saved by grace. If you're here and you've followed after Christ and you know that grace, don't forget that grace. On the days when you feel your lowest, remember that you are clothed in Christ's righteousness and nothing can take that away from you. And when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin or your shame or your guilt, but he sees his son. And on those days when you feel particularly good and confident about the good works that you do and the things that you're accomplishing, remember that it's not your suit of fig leaves that accomplishes anything, but it is the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit working in and through you to accomplish anything good at all. And so we need to learn to recognize those places of idolatry and covetousness in our life, to recognize our sin and the rightness of God's judgment of it. We need to learn to worship God because he judges sin, not in spite of that truth. To recognize that God's judgment over our sin and that the rules that God's put in place and the consequences for sin that God has put in place is for our good and for his glory, that he is working to push that sin out of his world. And one day, Jesus will make all things right and all things new and plunge that from his kingdom once and for all. And so we need to worship the God who is refining us and shaping us and disciplining us. But we also need to remember his boundless grace. The fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we didn't do anything to earn it, but he gave it to us free of charge as a gift because he loves us in spite of our sin and our shame. And so it's very fitting that we go through this passage in the season of Lent. Because we do hear that passage of Scripture echoed over and over through this entire season that for you are dust and to dust you shall return. But we also hear that in light of the hope of Jesus Christ who became nothing for us and took the form of a servant and suffered death at the hands of a Roman government. And he laid in the tomb for three days but rose again to give us the promise and the assurance of our inheritance that comes through grace alone. And so we need to be people who practice confession, recognizing the idolatry and the pride in our lives and the sin that's born out of that and putting it before God, asking him to deliver us from that temptation and deliver us from that sin and then repenting of that laying it at the feet of Jesus and then walking away, following after Christ everywhere that he leads. And as we do, immersing ourselves in his grace, knowing that when we fall, he picks us back up. When we're covered in shame and guilt, he wipes us clean. When we're wearing inadequate clothes of self-righteousness, he wraps us in his robes of righteousness and each and every day draws us closer and closer to being fully made in that image once again, 
And so balancing that confession and repentance with the worship and joy that comes in knowing that he has given us grace upon grace. And when sin abounds in our lives, as Paul says, grace abounds all the more. And so let's worship God fully, not compartmentalizing his judgment and his grace and choosing the one we want to celebrate at given times, but recognizing the balance of God's judgment of sin and his grace that washes over it and being thankful always because of the God who is, recognizing that the God we think we want is a God who will always fail us. But the God who is and who introduces himself so boldly and profoundly in Genesis is a God who will never leave us or forsake us and a God who gives us more than we could ever deserve 